Right now we're in week two of a series where we're trying to tell the whole story of the gospel in 12 weeks. Last week we saw that God created the world and ordered it so it would be beautiful and peaceful. But humans sinned, and that caused the whole world to go into chaos. We recognize that for the Bible, sin is what unmakes the world and causes it to fall away from God's intention and toward chaos. Humans recognize that the world was slowly being unmade because of sin, and that was driving away the presence of God. They tried to rescue the world by making a tower to God and that allowed them to have the presence of God on their own terms. But instead, God scattered them by giving them different languages so that they couldn't understand each other, and he began to rescue the world by making a deal with a guy named Abraham. Instead of all the curses that happened in the first few chapters of Genesis, God would bring blessing to Abraham and his family, and through that family, all the nations of the world would be blessed and the world would be remade. There would be a new creation that slowly breaks into the world through this one family, and the presence of God would be with the people once again like it was in the Garden of Eden. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about Israel, which was the family that descended from Abraham. In this chapter that we just read, one of the main questions that it answers is, what does it look like to be blessed by God through the deal that he made with Abraham? We saw a good bit of that last week in Genesis, where even when that family made some serious mistakes, they all kind of worked out to his benefit. We saw that it was his first, the first sign that God's deal to bless the whole world through Abraham was starting to work. But what does it look like for a whole nation, or even the whole world, to benefit from that same covenant? In other words, why should you want to be a part of the people of God? Why should you want to be a Christian? Since this is kind of an unfamiliar passage, let me summarize what has happened so far. So, the Exodus just happened, and the Israelites are coming up from Egypt and traveling to the Promised Land. One thing we don't often think about is the perspective of all the countries that they had to pass through in order to get there. And when you think about it, it's a little threatening. You have an entire horde of hundreds of thousands of people that are just kind of walking through your land. What are they planning on doing? Are they violent? Where are they going to settle? Are they going to raid your crops? Not only that, but they've just destroyed a number of other kingdoms on the way here. So you can understand why a lot of these countries were a little hostile to the idea of this massive group of people just strolling through their land. One of these countries was Moab, which was a country just east of the Promised Land. The king of Moab was named Balak, and as the Israelites were about to come through his land, he was afraid, so he thought it would be good to have the gods on his side. Of course, he probably would have had a hard time fighting this apparently fierce army, so if you get the gods on your side, then maybe you have a shot. How do you get the gods on your side? Well, if you can get a really good prophet, they might be able to do it. A good prophet basically has all the gods wrapped around his finger. As you can imagine, a good prophet in these days was, could make really good money. The gods love him so much that they'll just do whatever he wants them to do. Balak wanted the best of the best, so he had messengers travel a couple hundred miles to go see Balaam. Now, we might not know this, but Balaam was kind of a rock star. He was the Tom Brady of prophets. The gods loved him so much that they did literally anything that Balaam wanted. In fact, he was such a great and famous prophet that archaeologists discovered a story written about this exact Balaam son of Beor inscribed on a wall at a place called Deir Allah in Jordan. Not only that, but the inscription was written about 500 years after Balaam died. People were talking about how great Balaam was half a millennium after he died. He had all the gods on his side, 
Ishtar, Baal, Chemosh, Mot, even this other god that we'd never even heard of before in Mim Shigar. He had them wrapped around his finger so that Balak said, whoever he blesses, the gods bless, and whoever he curses, the gods curse. Anyway, apparently, Balaam could get mildly annoyed at someone, and boom, splat, they're dead. Balak has his messengers go and bring the brains truck full of cash to Balaam's house and said, if you curse the Israelites so they don't go through my land, I'll give you everything I have. But what becomes obvious eventually is that Balaam might have the other gods wrapped around his finger, but he doesn't have the true god wrapped around his finger. When Balaam travels to Moab to curse the Israelites, his donkey stops short three times because it sees the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. But Balaam doesn't see the angel and gets angry with the donkey and beats it. The famous Balaam, the Tom Brady of prophets, knows all the other gods super well, but he doesn't know the true god even half as well as his donkey does. Finally, Balak gets Balaam up to a mountain so that he can see the Israelites, and he gets them to try to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. But it turns out that he just can't do it. Instead, what actually comes out of his mouth is a blessing. This happens three times before Balak says, you know what, just don't even do anything, you're just making things worse. But then Balaam's like, I can't help it, and then ends up blessing them two more times. Even though Balaam was promised like a billion dollars if he just pronounces a curse on this caravan of wanderers, he can't get his mouth to form the words. God has somehow stopped him from cursing them. No matter how hard Balaam tries, he can't get God to take the side of the Moabites. The Tom Brady of prophets simply can't do it. God is on the side of the Israelites. Balaam was such a great prophet that it seemed like the gods were always on his side. It was a foregone conclusion that if Balak hires, the, hires Balaam for whatever amount of money is necessary, the curse would go through and the Israelites would be dealt with. Yahweh's relationship and loyalty to a random Joe Schmo Israelite was so strong that even the most famous and powerful prophet in the world couldn't touch him. All the power of all the gods which Balaam had at his disposal was nothing compared to the gods' power and loyalty to the Israelites. And we can probably imagine how Balaam managed to become such a powerful prophet. He probably went to prophet school or joined a prophet guild. He probably spent all his time in temples and wrote prayers and composed songs for the gods. Whatever is the case, Balaam's ability to wield the power of the gods was apparently extraordinary. I mean, people were talking about it for hundreds of years. So why couldn't he just do whatever he wanted to some random Israelite? To answer that question, it's interesting to look at the way that Balak says in Numbers 22.6 that whoever Balaam blesses is blessed and whoever Balaam curses is cursed. Or on the other hand, in Numbers 24.9, where it says whoever blesses Israel is blessed and whoever curses Israel is cursed. It sounds a lot like God's covenant with Abraham last week. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. God has a covenant with Israel that says that he will keep them from harm and cause them to prosper. Unlike the other gods, the true God will always stick to his promises, even ones made hundreds of years ago. So we're left here with an unstoppable cursor versus uncursable people, and the uncursable people win. God simply cannot allow Balaam to curse his people. Then look at what happens right after our passage. It's not like the Israelites are being all that loyal to God. The very next thing that happens in 25.1 is the Israelites start worshiping idols. There's no indication that they even had any idea that God had just saved them. They don't know how lucky they are to have a God like that. 
But God blesses them for two whole chapters, straight out of the mouth of a foreign prophet anyway. God was remaking the world through the Israelites, whether they liked it or not. What does this tell about the, us about the kind of blessing that this covenant can give us? Well, first of all, it tells us that any random Christian can have a closer relationship with God than the most dedicated professional religious people could have ever dreamed. That's true even if you're not a particularly good Christian. Balaam was famous the world over for his ability to get the gods on his side, but even he was hilariously unable to get the true God on his side. Meanwhile, any random Israelite had complete access to God. During this time, Israelites practically lived three doors down from God because he was present in the tabernacle. Today, God lives with us, within us through the Holy Spirit. We have total access to the creator of the universe. Even though God is so much higher than we can understand, our God doesn't exist so far away from us that we need a professional degree to talk to him. He is so committed to blessing us, and through us blessing the whole world, that even if we f completely fail to be loyal to him, he is loyal to us. And since God became a human in Jesus Christ, we know super well how to talk to him because he was one of us. Second, it tells us that God sticks to his promises even when we don't stick to ours. In this passage, Israel was in the midst of learning what God's expectations were for them. And just as God was miraculously upholding his end of the bargain, Israel was flagrantly violating like the first rule of being a part of God's people. When Israel failed to uphold God's expectations to the covenant, God actually became a human and fulfilled them for us so that he would be able to continue to bless us like the covenant said. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from punishing us even when we most deserve it. Deserve it. God has promised to remake the world and undo the effects of sin through his chosen people, and he's faithful to that promise whether we uphold our end or not. The pa this passage also is also the first foreshadowing of a Messiah who will reunite the peoples of the earth in the kingdom of God. Moab thought they could curse Israelite, Israel through Balaam so they couldn't enter the promised land. But instead, Balaam prof prophesies that Moab will have to bend the knee to the king of Israel. Now, clearly, no king of Israel ever really fulfilled this prophecy until Jesus. And so at the time of Jesus, this was an important verse. The prophecy says that a star shall rise out of Jacob. And it probably would have been in the minds of Matthew's readers when the wise men follow a star to the Messiah's birth. On the cross, Jesus was enthroned as the king of Israel. And through the apostles, the kingdom of God was spread throughout the whole world. We ourselves, coming from all kinds of different countries and ethnicities, are the perfect living evidence of this exact prophecy that God's kingdom would go worldwide. In Jesus, the curse of Babel, that the peoples of the earth would be scattered, has been completely reversed, and now we all gather in this room and speak the same language of the kingdom of God right here. But what is amazing about this prophecy is that it was, it was fulfilled so unexpectedly. The skulls of Moab will be crushed, and so will all the heads of the son of Sheth. Sounds pretty violent to me. I don't know about you. Instead, the king of Israel's head was crushed on Moab's behalf, and Moab bowed their heads willingly. The violence that was meant to be suffered by Israel's enemies was instead suffered by Israel's king. It was through love that God conquered the world, and that is what the kingdom of God has always been built on. When the church has been most successful, it's been because they were willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. God suffered that his kingdom would be established, and so we too get to suffer out of love to advance that kingdom.